0: Okay, not rushing on too quickly, but if, you, if you've got a Bible, you'd like to find Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, I'm going to read from verse 26 to the end of the chapter. If you haven't got a Bible, the word should appear behind me on the screen. You can follow along there. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. If we deliberately keep on sinning, after we've received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? But we know him who said, it's mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Remember those earlier days after you'd received the light, When you endured in a great conflict full of suffering, sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere, so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. And, but my righteous one will live by faith, and I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved we've been looking through Hebrews chapter 10 for a few weeks since we returned uh, to the letter to the Hebrews this wonderful point of the uh, the writer's uh, argument that he's built up the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming The law, everything that they'd had through the Old Testament, and Moses had been given the law, and they'd received the sacrificial system, everything about it, all of it, it's only a shadow of the good things that were coming. And the reality is, the good things have come. Jesus has come. Jesus has come, and that which was pointing towards him, now, it's all focused on Jesus. It's all about him. The law was only pointing the way, and we've seen this wonderful sense as he's built, up, built this up through chapter 10. Jesus has come, and with one sacrifice, once and for all, he's made a way. We've seen the wonderful positive truth of that, particularly as we look at uh, chapter 10, verse 10. By that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And that wonderful sense in chapter 12, when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. I've been building up this argument. What treasure. What a wonderful salvation. What wonderful truth. Jesus has come. The fulfilment of everything that was pointing the way. One sacrifice, once for all, he's made a way. And in the verses, uh, the kind of preceding verses to this passage, verse 19, we've seen this wonderful positive encouragement and exhortation. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, and verse 22, what does he say for us to do? Let us draw near to God. Let us draw near. It's a great reminder that we've been saved into relationship with God, into this closeness of relationship, into intimacy with him. And the encouragement, therefore, to live in the fullness of that. Draw near. Draw near. Hold on to that faith. Encourage one another. Come together to, in closeness with God's. We see this sense of holding on, of persevering. That's the context that keeps coming up and up throughout, throughout the letter, but throughout this chapter. Jesus has done this for you. He's brought you into something, so keep going with it. Keep going with what he has won for you. It's the context he comes back to in, in verse 32, where he's telling them, remember the earlier days. Come, press on. Press on towards the coming day. When Jesus will return. Keep going. Keep spurring one another on. Keep pressing into God's. But we see in these few verses in between, as before, the author is not afraid to speak sternly. To come and bring what seems a very harsh warning. Speak so directly. Let's read those verses. If we deliberately keep on sinning, this is verse 26. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? who has treated as an unholy thing, the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and who has insulted the spirit of grace. He's not afraid to bring a clear warning. He's not pulling back from talk of judgment and of consuming fire, of punishment. It's so stark, once again, as he's, as he's already said previously in, in chapter 3. In chapter 3, in fact, it refers back to similar time to what uh, Liam was talking about with Moses in the desert. But he talks about their grumbling and their rebelling. And he said, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. And then particularly in verse 12. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily. And again in chapter 6, he comes very strongly Chapter 6, verse 4. It's impossible for those who have been, once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance, to their loss, their crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. He's not shy to bring hard words he's not afraid of bringing stark warnings and here he's not afraid to come having laid it out look jesus has come with one sacrifice once and for all he has made a way he's not afraid to tell the truth actually if we reject this one sacrifice what is left what's left only judgment He's made this glorious, wonderful way for us to come. The truth is, as we summarized last time, the truth is that it really is Jesus or judgment. He has made the way. If we reject that way, what is left for us? Jesus is the only way, as he said himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father Except through me. And so the author doesn't pull back from pointing this out. If you reject this hope, then there is no hope. There is no other sacrifice for sin. There remains only a fearful expectation of judgment. But what specifically is the purpose of this warning? To answer that, we'll first ask ourselves a question. Is he giving this warning to strike fear in the hearts of believers? You see, he's talking, he's writing to a group of believers. He's writing to these Hebrews who've come to know Jesus. He's writing to a a kind of a church group. And he says in verse 26, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left. You see, those words can strike immediate fear. I'm trusting in Jesus, but if I slip up, If I sin, what then? And you see, the early church around the second century got very tied up in all this. Got very tied up. Many have struggled throughout the centuries and quickly developed the idea based on these verses, on this verse particularly, and others. Actually, that any sin, after you've come to know Jesus, after you've been baptized, any sin, you're out. That's it. It's unforgivable. No sacrifice remains. It's almost like being brought to the start line of a race in the Olympics. We're in. We get to run. And we line up on the blocks, on your marks, get set. (laughs) You've gone before the gun. So therefore, there's two guns, and it's ominous. It was you. You slipped up. You went early. You're out. That's it. Is that what he's saying? Is that what he's saying? You've been brought in, but now you have to toe the line exactly. You need to follow all the rules. You're standing on some kind of tightrope. If I keep moving in on the tightrope, but I know it, any step to the side, and I've fallen. I've gone. Is that what he's talking about? You see, the, the second century Christians soon realized we all still do sin we're trying not to and we're trying to go with go after god but sin is still here so they made a concession they said one sin is allowed one sin it's almost like the old false start rule in the race it's okay if you go early once you're all right but then you've got to be really really careful but is this what the author's talking about Faithful believers trying to follow God. But any little slip and you're out. You see, the author is very clear. He emphasizes the seriousness of sin. He emphasizes the ugliness of sin. But he's not making the case to put everyone in some kind of paranoid state. Any little slip up. I'm trying to follow you, Jesus. But I know that any little slip up and I'll be out. No. Let's see what he's actually saying. Even this phrase, if we deliberately keep on sinning, in that phrase, you get this real sense of a willful continuation in sin, a a going on of, it's almost as if the gospel has had no effect. It's not done anything. We're just carrying on the way we always were. And if you take it in the context of what he's saying, look at the other descriptions he gives. We deliberately go on. We're continuing as we are. And then in verse 27, what does he say? These people are enemies of God. If we go on like this, it's trampling the Son of God underfoot. And then tellingly,
1: also in verse 29,
0: treating as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them. In that phrase, there's a sense almost of... It's like receiving a gift and then looking at the gift and saying, it's not really that great, is it? Treating it as an unholy thing. Treating it as a... It's common and ordinary. The blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus. Treating it as an unholy thing. It's like seeing the gift, understanding, hearing the truth of the gift of God and saying... Well, Jesus didn't do that much, did he? It's not really that great. Wow. And finally, insulting the spirit of grace. There's this picture built up of a person unchanged by the gospel of God. A person who's come to the point of just flat out rejecting Jesus' sacrifice for them. You see, the early church got... Kind of stuck up in this idea of this is a faithful follower who's trying to follow Jesus just needs to be in this state of paranoia that one slip up and they'll be gone. When actually the author's trying to call us, draw near to him. Don't be those who reject him. It's not a tightrope of fear. Rather, in summary, without him, there is no hope. Without him, there is no hope. He's not trying to put us on a tightrope to get us into some kind of paranoid state of fear. But actually, here, even here, he is emphasizing the gift of God. Is he trying to strike fear in the heart of believers? Well, not in that sense. Here, he is emphasizing the gift of God. You see, the author wants to draw them and us ever closer to our Saviour. To understand and to appreciate this gift that we've been given. You see, again, going back to those verses, those words in verse 29, the idea that those who are going on deliberately sinning, who are trampling the Son of God underfoot, they're treating as unholy the blood of Christ. Seeing it as some common, ordinary thing that isn't worth anything. You see, the author's pointing us back again, look. How precious it is. Look how wonderful it is. Can you see even here as he he brings the warning. Look at the wonder of what God has done for you. Look at the wonder of the blood of Christ. Look at the wonder of his sacrifice on the cross. In highlighting the, 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 the seriousness and the ugliness of sin. And of the seriousness of the judgment that is to come. As he goes on in verse 30 and 31, quoting from Deuteronomy 32. He focuses him so clearly on the judgment of God and the justice that God will bring. We know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. And the author's summary, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living gods. Even in bringing this. Look what he's doing. He's not shying away from the wrath of God. He's not shying away from God's righteous judgment, God's hatred of sin. He's so clear, so firm about this seriousness. But you see here, the warning reinforces the encouragement. Look what Jesus has done for you. Look at the value of what Jesus has done. Do we understand? Do we appreciate the wonder of the, are we in wonder and awe at the blood of Christ? Are we in wonder and awe at his gift to us? The author's calling us to wonder at it, the forgiveness we've received. You see, this is the judgment that is to come. But look, because of what Jesus has done, look what he's saved you out of. He's calling us to draw ever nearer in wonder. You see, rather than the reaction being, I'm on a tightrope, I mustn't slip, I mustn't slip, I mustn't slip, the author's calling us to a place of adoration. Wow, look at this gift. How could I ever turn from this wonderful grace? How could I ever come to a place of seeing my Savior as, well, it's not really that much, is it? How could I ever bring myself to that position? I want to come closer to my heavenly father. Come closer to my wonderful savior. He's calling for an adoration that cries, wow. And as he does so, he's challenging again our attitude. We've been saved into life with Christ. We've been saved into a journey with him, an adventure with him. Is challenging our attitude that can, can treat so easily salvation as some kind of tick box ticket that we put on the shelf and say, that's great, that's sorted. Now what's next? I'll choose for myself. We've been brought into new life. We've been brought into a place of changed hearts. He's renewed us. The old has gone, the new has come. And so almost the exhortation here shows Actually, if we are in Christ, we can read with the with the author and look at it and go, Of course, of course, if we were ever if we were going, we're saying, I've been saved, I've been transformed by the grace of God, and yet actually I don't really care about it, and I'm going off to do my own thing. How could we ever get ourselves in that place? And so he calls us, keep focusing on him. Keep focusing on him. And never lose the wonder of what he has done. And you see also an exhortation. Actually, if you haven't come to know him, if you haven't come to this place of forgiveness, come to this place of saying, I was going my own way, but no, I know it's Jesus, is the only way, then come to him. Come to him. Don't ever get yourself to the place. Don't let yourself drift to the place where, as he said in chapter 3, hard hearts that won't turn do not harden your hearts like they did in the rebellion but come to him you see in a sense the warning is not so much i could commit a sin and lose my salvation i'm in panic i'm in paranoia but actually i could hear the truth and i could seemingly be a part of everything that's going on and yet and yet never have truly received what he is giving but again, even in that place, the call is more, as Mark brought earlier, why are you looking for the living among the dead? Come and look for him here. Come and find him here. He's calling you. Come to Jesus. Come to Christ. Come and repent. Come and come draw near to him. And find actually there is a great salvation. Hear the author's call. You see, the warning as previous warnings through Hebrews serves to drive us all to come back to him, to come closer to him, to fix our eyes on him. Not to think fearfully, but to think in wonder. Look at what my Saviour has done. And what does he bring out of it? He doesn't stay with the warning. He doesn't stay with the warning. Like In fact, like all the other warning passages in Hebrews, where we bring this stark reminder, this stark warning of, look, fix your eyes on Jesus, we see encouragement. And encouragement here, particularly, to keep going, to persevere, to hold fast to what Jesus has won, to hold fast to our Saviour, to live out the salvation that He's won for us. A reminder, as we've said, of the life that we're called to live. Not a tick box we've checked, but a life of faith following him. He calls us to outwork our faith. And we see that in verse 32 to 36. Sorry, verse 32 all the way to the end, to verse 39. He lifts up this encouragement to persevere. You see, he uses the warning to re-emphasize the wonder of what Christ has done for us. And calls us to keep going with him. And quickly he gives three encouragements in persevering. Three encouragements in keeping going with God. Of keeping focused on him. And firstly, in, in, from verse 32, he calls them to remember what has been. Verse 32, remember those earlier days after you'd received the light, when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You see, he draws them to look back and see, look, look what happened in the early days. Look what happened. Look, what, look how you stood firm. It's, it sounds like he's asking them to, he's reminding them of some tough times. They had a, a tough kind of start, they were brought in to know the truth, and immediately persecution was hitting. But what's he calling them to look back? He's saying, look how you stood firm, and look how God was faithful. Look how God saw you through. Look how you were able to continue with him. You see, we're not called to dwell on the past, to, to look back nostalgically and live in past glory days. But here we see, we can be reminded, as we look back, to see, look what God has done. Look how he saved us. Look how he's brought us on. Look how he worked in that situation. Look how he helped us to stand firm there. Look how he moved miraculously in that situation. You see, the writer calls uh, calls them and, and us to remember the importance of telling stories. To remember what God has done amongst us. To remember what God has done in your lives. To look back and see that time was horrendously tough. And yet look what God did. Look how God managed to bring us through. It wasn't exactly how I would have planned it, but look what God did. And so now as I'm standing here, I'm going to trust that God again. I'm going to trust him again and I'm going to keep moving forward. It reminds us to remember those stories that God has done, has worked in us. As a church, we can remember right back to how this building came, about, came to be, of how God provided miraculously. We can look back to, to stories of healing, million, millions, lots of stories of healing, <laughs> of God breaking in in power in situations where, well, we can look back through history to millions of stories, anyway, to loads of situations where God broke in Miraculously. We can look back individually to different situations where I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know what was going to come in this place. And then God broke in. Or God led me through. It's not that he changed everything in some amazing way, but he saw me through. I came through. I don't know how I came through that, but God brought me through. The author says, persevere. You've seen how God is faithful. He'll continue to be faithful keep going with him secondly having told them to remember what has been he encourages them to see what is coming verse 36 you need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God you will receive what he has promised for in just a little while he who is coming will come and will not delay And, but my righteous one will live by faith, and I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. See, the author calls for the readers and for us to continue persevering in faith because look what's coming. Look what's coming. He is coming back. Jesus is coming back. The end will come and it will be glorious. It will be incredible. Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, he will come in glory. And for those who persevere, those who are his, those who are saved and carry on, we will be with him. Ultimately, that's the reality that we're heading towards. We will be with him forever.
1: So he calls them, be those who persevere to the end. Revealing that you are those
0: who are truly saved. Those who are truly his. Live with eternity in mind. Look forward to that day. Seeing he's coming back. God is coming back. Jesus wins in the end. Jesus has won at the cross. But at the end he will come in glory. He, there will be no doubt. And so in a sense the, the writers of the Hebrews calls us to, to cry out with Paul. As he cries out in 2 Corinthians 4. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse
1: 17,
0: Paul cries these hard but wonderful words For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Words that are in no way to be used glibly. Certainly not talking to anyone going through something in a way of, oh well, it's only light and momentary. But something to cry out. I want that heart of Paul. I want to, be, I want to come to an understanding as Paul did, that actually he could be going through shipwrecks and persecution and all of this stuff and he can declare, this is light and momentary compared to the glory that is coming. Persevere. Keep going. He is faithful and he is good. And he is worth it. And he is coming back in glory. Thirdly, he calls them to look back. He calls them to look forward. But thirdly, he calls them to hold on to what is true. Verse 39. We do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed. But to those who have faith and are saved. Very quickly, he calls them to remember and calls us to remember. If we're in Christ, we are his. If we are in Christ, we are his. He has won us, he has paid for us, he has forgiven us, he has rescued
1: us. And so we can declare,
0: we are not those who shrink back. Let's not be those who shrink back. But we are those who have faith in him who has won us.
1: He calls them to stand on this truth.
0: He calls us to stand on this truth. Jesus has won you. And therefore, you are those who have faith. He's put it in you to live it out. Because that's the point, this life of love and
1: adoration
0: flows out of what he has put in us. So that we can live persevering to the end. We can live and we can look at words like this and think, no, I'm going to fix my eyes on Jesus. I'm not going to slip away and, say, and carry on as if nothing had ever happened. No, I've been won by my Saviour. I'm going to live for him. Amen.